0: Welcome to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast.
1: Adam, welcome to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. This is it. Like This is as, as formal as it gets, awesome. um, but re- really excited to, to have you on here to chat and, and to meet Jeff and uh, for us to just talk about uh, stuff a little bit. So you were the chief customer officer of iSIMS and you've moved out of that role recently, but I'm, maybe talk to, talk to us for a couple minutes about what that role was for you and when you exited the business and sort of what you're what you're up to right now and then we're going to dig in I, I can't wait to hear more about like how that role unfolded as i Group because you were in it for a while so
0: yeah i mean there's there's a lot to share i mean i spent over 18 years um at ISIMs and i mean i can't believe that it, that it's that long but before i get into that history i do want to thank both of you for for not only having me on this is exciting to be able to talk about some of this stuff um a lot of experiences to kind of um kind of run through Uh, but more importantly to kind of be surfacing the topics that you've been surfacing. Uh, I've personally enjoyed uh, uh, all the discussions on LinkedIn and the new community that you've built out. uh, And it's really fun to actually be an active part of it in this session. And uh, I definitely look forward to continuing uh, being a part of the community as we go, but I really appreciate it because it's such a um, important topic to me. uh, Personally, it's an important topic, I believe to um, generally the the software as a service community. Uh, And it's also a confusing topic because, a lot of people have different definitions of what customer success is and even the role of a chief customer officer, what it is and what it isn't. Um, so I'm happy to share some of my perspectives and some of my experiences. Doesn't mean that they're right or wrong or whatever, but um, certainly um, some guideposts that kind of helped me uh, move along in the journey. So yeah, one of the things, so you were employee number six. Did I Pretty much, right? yeah, At, yeah. at ISIMS? Yep. So earlier, how many employees do they have now? Uh company's just about a thousand employees. Okay. Just okay. About a thousand Right. Employees. So yeah. That, so when I joined, we were we were we were tiny, tiny. We had less than 50 customers, under a million in annual recurring revenue. And um, when I exited a little bit earlier this year, uh, we're about a thousand employees and 250 million in annual recurring revenue. So I mean, it's 18 plus years at one company. But as I think about it, it really was like living a life in four or five different companies over that time to changed that much.
1: Um, sure. I mean, the, the what's amazing to me is that.
0: I mean, you were relatively young when you started at the company. Straight out of right? school. First right? job and, out of college. So, I, 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 Jay, I think I may have mentioned this to you before. You know, I was just, I was happy to have a job making some money when I started and, you know, figured what I was, I'll figure out what I was going to be when I grow up um, at some point in time. But uh, a few different experiences at iSIMS made me realize that um, this was not a job. This was actually an opportunity for me to build a career. Um, and I'm very proud of what I did and um, definitely excited for the things that I have kind of coming in the future based upon that experience with iSIMS. I mean, most people, most CEOs can't last 18 years,
1: even in the company that they founded, right? I mean, there's a number of transitions. So yeah, let's let's dig in. Jeff, you had, go ahead. You had a point. You yeah, I was going to say,
2: you open. know, uh, talk about that 18 years, you know, where did you start in the organization? Um, and maybe like when you start, like you said, you kind of maybe chunk it up into a couple of different uh, companies that you worked for, you know, how do you think about the roles that you kind of navigated to get to, you know, that chief customer officer role?
0: Sure. So um, I'll, I'll start off and just give you a little bit of a sense of, of iSIMS as a very, very early company. Um, so I joined in August of 2001, which is you know a wonderful time to you know, be with a startup software company with all the things that were going on in the world at that time. But um, the company was founded a little bit earlier in, in 2000, so still very young and they spent the first year really building up the technology. Uh, and then earlier in 2001, began going to market and began bringing on some of the first customers. Uh, the company was funded through an angel investor that provided seed money to um, our CEO, Colin Day, uh, who's uh, just a phenomenal human being, let alone phenomenal leader. And um, um, early in that journey, uh, he was asked to basically say, you need to begin showing profitability here. Um, we're not going to be able to continue to fund you. So you need to make this thing self-sufficient. And um, little before, I, little little did I know that before I joined, there was a, a reduction in force. Um, there were probably about 30 employees that got reduced down to the six or the five or the six that I mentioned. And I was the first hire after that. Had no idea of this at that time. There weren't things like Glassdoor and all those great sites to tell you what's going on at the company's And Again, I was just happy to get a job um, coming out of school. Um, but I was the first hire after this period. My job was in marketing. And I still joke with Colin to this day. I'm like, Thank God we didn't have any money to spend because I don't know what I would have spent it on. I'm sure I would have <laughs> wasted it. So uh, we had to be creative about the way that we marketed ourselves. Uh, and uh, marketing, when you're in a company that small, yes, you're, you're doing things like putting copy on a website and you're trying to get uh, buyers to come in, but you're doing a little bit of everything, including literally taking out the garbage. I mean, that's kind of how, how small we were. Um, but as we began to figure some things out, we, we knew that email marketing was a great venue for us. So we began to tap into that a little bit further. Um, And then we uh, were getting some traction and we just needed to figure out how we were going to define ourselves in the market. And uh, at the time, there were probably about 100 or so different type of technology providers that offered similar technology to iSIMs. We specialized in recruitment technology. So it was a very saturated market and it was hard to differentiate. And so we spent a lot of time just trying to figure out, well, how were we going to be different? How were we going to be able to credibly position ourselves as a leader within the market? And we really bucketed into three ways. We thought that if we were going to be a leader, we were going to need to do it in one of these ways. One way was to be the innovator, to be on like the bleeding edge of technology and to really have the coolest stuff that was out there. And we thought that would be a great way to do it, but did we believe that we could actually accomplish that? We ended up saying Mm -hmm. we didn't think we could accomplish it just because we didn't have the resources that so many other businesses had. So we didn't think we could necessarily do what we wanted to do there. We thought, could we be the price leader? And basically, bring everything down and make it lean and mean and try to drive things at a low rate. And we realized that if we were going to be successful and profitable, we were going to have to sign an unreal, unimaginable number of users onto our software. We said it just wouldn't be practical for us to do that. And so the last thing that we would have really been able to do to be a leader in the market was to focus on service, to be a, a customer leader and to let our experiences of our customers be the differentiating factor for us. And, it wasn't just because that was the only thing that was left after the discussion. It was also how we identified ourselves as individuals within the company. At that point, you know, less than 20 people, we felt that we could outwork people. We could out, you know, satisfy, out delight people. We knew that if we talked to our customers and we could get their feedback, we'd be able to build even better products for them. And then that would end up paying itself forward in many, many ways. And so we set out and we made ourselves um, the service leader. And the more and more we spoke about it, the more and more people ask us, well, why, what do you do? And we just let the experiences speak for themselves. The experiences that they've had in the sales process, the experiences that they had the implementation process, the experience that they had working with our technical support team. We really just focus on that entire journey to break those things down and to make those things really easy and really um, successful for our clients. Um, so kind of getting into that world and really getting an identity behind ourselves. So we weren't chasing everything, but we knew who we were and why we were different. Was such a huge a huge mark for us, and being a SaaS provider, every SaaS provider should be customer centric. Every SaaS company should be thinking that they're going to be differentiating totally. by service. Um, and even to this day, you know, nearly twenty years later, so many businesses say it, but they don't identify it and they don't necessarily deliver on it. Uh, and so it's something that I'm very proud that ISM's was on the forefront of and still represents to this day.
2: One of the yeah, things it. I think is really interesting about that part too. Sorry, Jay, that. Um, I really like to latch on to because of the businesses we've worked with over the last three years is the the fact that you were forced to go drive profitability very early because I think we, a lot of times now, you know, one of the first questions that we ask as we go into work with clients or even if I'm talking to, you know, anybody that we meet in the community is one of the first questions I'm asking is what type of backing do you have? Is it venture capital? Is it uh, private equity? Is it late stage equity? Is it growth? Uh, You know, is it, are you actually bootstrapped? Are you trying to become profitable? Because I think that what I've learned maybe over the last three years myself is like the answer to that question really changes a lot of the dynamics in the company and the way that your company should organize the growth rates that you're anticipating and really the bet that somebody puts behind you and, you know, really changes the trajectory of where you're going. So I I love the fact that you guys kind of got forced into that profitability bucket really early, because if you're building a sustainable business like that, then you can clearly see if I'm going to, get a dollar in the door, then I need to retain that because it's really important to our profitability. Like it makes it, you know, our lifeblood essentially when in some companies, that's not true right now, you know, it's, if they can go get more funding. We can, you know, the equation will work over time essentially. But I thought that was just really, I wanted to make sure and hit on that because I think a lot of times customer success leaders and, and people we come across don't often dig into the economics that deeply about, you know, what's the funding source and how are we, uh, how does actually a, kind of a dollar of a booking turn into cash for our business at the end of the day? Sorry, Jay, go ahead.
1: No, no, I think it's a great point. And because the, the funding source often will, in some ways, if you don't have a really strong leader and strong vision for what you want to do, will drive the culture if you're not careful, right? I mean, I've been in those companies. Um, but so, um, but it sounds like your culture was customer first from day one. And and that obviously benefited you guys. So, all right, so let's, let's hear the next stage of the story. So you're in marketing, and then. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, so we still haven't gotten anywhere close to like customer officer yet. So how did you know? So, yeah,
0: so, so I was in marketing and, um, we, we were beginning to grow and, um, in, in a company of that size, your, your founder is very much involved in the sale sell, the selling function as he is, or she is involved in all the different functions of the business, but definitely on the, on the sales front, they're usually your best salesperson at that, at that sort of stage. And we we're beginning to scale and grow, um, bring on other sellers and we we're doing a lot of work to make sure that they, um, understood the story and would be able to convey the story as passionately and as effectively as Colin did in those early days. Um, and then we would have, you know, just just like weekly catch-ups. I don't want to call them like true meetings because they weren't like real like meetings. It was like, hey, we worked in a small office, but hey, we're just going to get together. And we're going to just talk about sales stuff for an hour. And, um, you know, as it got bigger and I saw that Colin was getting more busy, I was always involved in those meetings because I was the front of the funnel. So so i was driving marketing activities but i was also the person that was qualifying inbound leads for the sales organization like that's how tightly knit we were i mean in fact i was even completing rfps and writing them myself at the stage um and and during the meetings i know that colin was like always trying to figure out like well what are we working on what's what are some of the deals that are coming and kind of casually one day i asked him if he wanted my if he wanted me to help kind of pull some of that information together and just so that it was ready for the meeting. So it wasn't like everybody scrambling before the meeting. And he said, oh, that would be great. It would be really big help. I'm like, great, could you just let people know that I'm gonna be asking for this stuff because the sellers were all experienced and older than I was um, at the time I was probably like 23. And he said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Um, great, A little while later, an email goes out to the company. Again, it's like 20 people. Congratulations to Adam on his promotion to manager of sales and marketing. <laughs> And I'm like, what? <laughs> what did I just do? So here, like now I'm like technically I'm technically their manager, right? Again, um, I I I mean these are the terms that were used. And I do say technically because in a company that small, everybody's really working together or should be working together that way. But I knew that if the business was going to grow and was gonna scale out, I did need to work very closely with the sales team, even though I was not a quote unquote seller myself. I wasn't a quota I wasn't a quota carrier, I hadn't gone through those battles that they've gone through and so little bit of a different dynamic. But I realized that if I were going to add value to that, I needed to find ways to help remove obstacles for the sellers. And um, even though I wasn't selling individually, I knew that my greatest value add to them was to try to whatever that barrier might be, whether they thought that, you know, our pricing model was too complicated, whether they thought the lead stunk, whether they couldn't get somebody on the phone, I was going to find a way to remove a barrier for them. And by doing so, I was able to build trust and credibility with them that they would want to work with me and open up a little bit on the things that that they were trying to accomplish. Uh, And over time, as our sales organization got bigger and I became more of a full-fledged manager and ultimately and eventually a director into sales, that servant leadership component really served me very, very well. Um, Because I just feel that if you hire the right people and you just do whatever you can to remove the obstacles from them and you just let those people be great you will get great results from that. Mm, and of course, things so will change over time as you need to scale and introduce different processes and whatnot, but at that point of scale, it was very much about um, uh, making sure you removed, removed obstacles. Um, the other aspect of my kind of move into the chief customer um, role was um, a lesson that I, I, I sort of learned in retrospect, I would say is that it's always better and easier for your life as a leader if you're hiring people truly better than yourself. And I had done that in marketing. Um, the current CMO at ISIM, Susan Vitale, is an incredible marketer. She's, she's recognized throughout the SaaS community for all the wonderful things that she's been able to do and just really, really accomplished. And I was able to bring her into the organization, and she was able to take over all the marketing responsibilities. So here I was, again, a, a young leader within the business. I never identified as a sales leader per se. I would say I always identified more so towards the customer and trying to get the business to grow. And I just portioned off marketing and Susan was going to go run with that. And now I'm like owning a quota of a team and I've never done this before. So like, oh my God, what did I just sign up for? Um, But I was always able to say, you know what, let's let the customer experience drive what we're trying to do. Because if we do right by our customers, all of the other things will fall into place. And we had gotten to a point of critical mass there where we realized that if you know, Armageddon happened and we lost all of our customers, all of a sudden our ARR at that time was going to go away in that month, we were not going to be able to sell through all of those losses with whatever we were going to do in, in prospect sales. And so we had to retain our customers. And that's when we began to say, well, if we're going to retain them, what are those opportunities to grow them and then use all of those success stories to then feed into what we were doing on the front end of the funnel? And so it really created a culture of accountability um, really around the experience because we couldn't sign customers that we weren't going to be able to deliver for. Um, There are a lot of companies that we would have loved to bring on. um, Maybe if we would have discounted or done this, done that, maybe unnatural sort of thing, we could have signed them. But would we have been able to be successful with them? And at that point of time, we wouldn't have been able to. And that would have ended up being more detrimental to our company and to our brand um, than not signing them at all. So we ended up passing on that business to make sure we focus on the right business for us. Of course, being guided by the principles of profitability and efficiency that Colin was driving for us.
1: Yeah, I mean it's an, another characteristic of companies that are, depending on your funding source, like don't always have the luxury of passing up deals to make sure right. they're the right ones. But there's a phrase that you used the first time we talked when you were describing sort of your end role, which is customer, chief customer officer owning sales, and then eventually owning all the customer facing functions as well. you said something about owning the commitment to the customer from end to end, which really stuck out to me. So this is obviously took root back in the back in the early days.
0: Well yeah, somewhat. I mean, I mean, to me when when we think about the role of a chief customer officer, um, I, I always view that role as being the broker between the customer and the business. Um, I needed to be the voice of customer internally, to all stakeholders. And I also needed to um, be the voice of the business back out to the customer, being the senior executive that all customers could point to and turn to and say, if I don't know where else to go, I'm going to go to that person. Um, and and I took a lot of pride in that. Um, the other, being at the company for as long as I was and, and seeing the way that we've grown and, and being as personally invested in iSIMS, the other thing that I had, like I guess, going for me, so to speak, was that... Um, I, I thought of our customer relationships as almost like actual relationships, and if a customer was going to go elsewhere, I felt like they were breaking up with me. Not that I wanted to be a crazy boyfriend yeah. or a nice girlfriend or anything like that, but <laughs> it was it was personal in that sense to be like, I sincerely want to know what we did wrong because I never want that to happen again. And if I could fix it, you know, for ten other customers that are going through something similar, I'd like to go out there and try to fix that. So it was a genuine interest in trying to figure out what went wrong and what could we do to potentially you know, avoid those outcomes. And in going through that journey, you realize that there are some things you could absolutely control and there's other things that you can't control. Um, And we ended up coming up with, um, you know, things that we refer to as causes, like the things that you can control. Like, I don't like your product, I don't like your service, I don't like your pricing. Like, those are all things that if a customer came to us, we would say, we could fix those. And if we fix that, are we back to being where we need to be? And then we thought about catalysts. And those are the things that are happening within the business that we could only indirectly impact. So things that we consider to be catalysts were things like um, our primary contact changed over, our executive contacts changed over, maybe they got acquired, maybe they're going through bankruptcy or going through some sort of financial thing. You can't control those, but maybe if you acknowledge what's going on there, you might be able to mitigate that outcome if you're able to open up a dialogue with that business. But going back to the chief customer officer role, that's why I I think it's very important for anybody that's going to be stepping into that role. um, And if any CEO is considering creating that function uh, is to really allow this person to be the voice of all of that for your business. Don't silo the person to just being the leader of your services organization. The chief customer officer should be the person within your company that is going to be the voice of churn for your business, the voice of the customer within your business. And sometimes the customer is going to say, you know what? I think your invoicing process stinks. Yep. It's not a service it's issue. It's well, well
1: beyond. Range, you know? Yeah, well, well beyond any, any product issue or any
0: yeah. uh, one team, right? It's the, the entire experience. Yeah. So while, while a chief customer officer may directly have responsibility for the services organization um, or maybe an aspect of the sales organization in terms of growth, whatever that might be, uh, to limit that person to only doing that, um would be a disservice to the business because as a CEO you want to have that one person you're able to go to to speak to the matters of churn and the matters of your customer no matter what that issue is so good
1: i remember yeah. the first time, i remember the first time i lost a customer and it, it to your point it was so personal for me like i felt like i had been kicked in the stomach yeah but i mean, I mean obviously it gets better over time but like that's what you you have to have that kind of passion for the customers that you create, especially in an earlier stage company like you were at the time.
0: Absolutely. And and for many of these customers, just by nature of the business, I might have spoken to them as they were originally signing on. Yeah, right. And, the original commitment. And, and to see them leave, it's like, we worked so hard to get that account. Like, how could it happen? And then when you peel back the, the, the layers of the onion, like, yeah, maybe we got that logo to sign on, but that business has totally changed. All the people that we worked with at one point in time, they're off doing other things. and. We didn't, maybe we didn't recognize that things were now different. So maybe we still had the same love for that business um, but we didn't necessarily create the same relationship with the new people within that. Um, it's one of those probably least talked about aspects of churn um, within our space. Everybody wants to talk about what could we do, be doing better from a service perspective? What's the new feature you need to bring in? The management of those relationships when there's changes on their side and also changes on your side, it's critical critical. And if you're able to kind of hone in on those and figure those out and create great um, experiences at those moments of truth, um, you're going to see meaningful improvement in churn numbers for sure.
2: And there's, there's a couple of things that um, really have resonated over the last last couple of minutes here. So one that I really liked is the fact as you grew up in the organization, right, you went from marketing into sales and then, um, you know, sales and then sounds like you know next right is to kind of the, the rest of the services and kind of after the initial sale what's happening and the reason that i bring that up is a lot of times when we go into organizations we've been doing a presentation to kick off our engagements and it's called the customer-centric behaviors and the first thing that we do is actually pull up a slide about the typical customer acquisition payback you know of being about 18 months for a customer in a, in a normal SaaS business if you look at some of the metrics The reason we do that is because um, one of the things that we've found is customer success teams have a really hard time understanding what the actual economics are and then how hard it is to actually win that dollar of business, right? So like we think of the hard, how hard it is in in terms of dollars to say, hey, you know, it actually costs us 18 months worth of runway to go get that. Like, so it really matters when we have to lose it. And I I think I'm going to make an inference here, but your perspective of going from marketing and like you said, seeing the very top of funnel um going into sales and you know completing the deal and then coming into the customer org, I feel like you probably had a huge perspective on man, how long did it really just go take us to win that business how much you know how much money were we actually putting into that effort um and now that's why it makes it even so much more important not only to couple that on top of how you mentioned obviously profitability and and getting to you know kind of a, a business that was actually sustainable was on the top of your mind as well or top of your angel investor's mind as well at least yeah i mean we we always looked at, like the big the big metric for me that i always
0: really drove myself to and drew, drove my organizations to was net revenue growth um and so every time we lost a customer i knew we were gonna have to sell something in order to in order to fill that bucket back up and it's just easier when you don't have a hole to dig yourself out of and uh there, there are times where i mean they i mean everybody's gonna lose a big customer at some point in time and you're like man how are you gonna be able to sell through that one but that's where you just need to give yourselves enough opportunities to do it and also do whatever you can in order to mitigate those, those negative outcomes. Um, But yeah, I, I, I knew that we had some big goals as a business and that was one of the biggest changes for me kind of in my journey. Jay, you were mentioning a little bit earlier on, like, like survivability in, in a business like that. I mean, ISOS was growing at like 30%, 20 to 30% for, I mean, it's still growing at that rate. So we've, for the better part of 15 years, the company has been growing at that rate. And, and that's, I mean, the business changes dramatically every you know, totally. three years in that, in that world. But one of the biggest changes was when expectations hit. It was when our board stopped asking us to say like, well, what is your, what's your exit strategy and saying, wait a minute, you could actually grow this thing if you really invest more money in. And, and it was at that point that we uh, brought on our first, um, our first investor, uh, um, a PE firm, Susquehanna Growth Equity. And that's actually the PE firm that I, I currently advise for. Uh, And we were so fortunate to be able to partner with a company like them because they really just allowed us to operate the business as we believed was right. They trusted us. They trusted our leadership team. And I'm sure if we didn't deliver for them, then there would have been changes and maybe they would have been a bit more active in what we were doing. But they trusted us and we delivered and um, it was a really incredible, incredible ride. Um, It was at that point in time that I became the chief customer officer um for a period of time in my in my tenure i was um titled chief operating officer and it even to this day it feels like it was a little, was a little bit of a misnomer um in my role of chief operating officer uh i would say that i ran customer operations uh and so i um one did that include sales at the time it did include sales so um yeah. every dollar of revenue came through to me uh so as soon as that lead hit our website we would qualify it and that qualification experience would run through me um, the sellers would close that. We would transition over to account management, which ran through that work. And then the entire professional services and technical services model, inclusive of training, kind of reported through that through that group as well. But it was truly the the full life cycle of our customers. And that's another kind of thing. When people are talking about customers in a SaaS world, they're usually talking about those that have already signed the contracts. Whereas in any other business, if you think about retail, yep. as soon as yep. you walk into that store, you're a customer. You haven't bought anything yet. But you're a customer. And that's the way that I always thought about it. If somebody was kind of experiencing us for the first time, whether engaging us on our website or working through our lead forms or speaking to our team members, those are customer experiences and we need to treat them at that point in time as if they're customers and not just after they sign that contract.
2: You a, do you think there was Absolutely. Do you think there's a huge difference in the perception of you to your customers because your title was chief customer officer rather than like chief revenue officer. Like, do you think there was, could you actually tell a tangible difference when you were, you know, sitting in the room and you felt like, man, even just by that small nuance, like, they felt like I had their back probably more than if my title was like chief revenue officer.
0: Jeff, that's, that's a great question because there's actually a story behind that. So um, as I was chief operating officer, I, I enjoyed um, working under that title because it certainly conveyed authority. So when I was speaking with the customer, they know that they were speaking with a person that could get something done for them. And that's, that was, that was important. Um, but as we scaled and we, we began to build out a more proper organization that really focused on things like our you know facilities infrastructure and our legal infrastructure, like true, like, true um, um, depth of business types of things, we began to think differently about what a COO would be. Um, And at that time, I basically had an opportunity to title myself. uh, And for the exact purposes that you outlined, Jeff, um, I wanted to uh, move forward as chief customer officer. Um, I felt that that best indicated what I was most passionate about and what I would bring to the equation. Uh, If I were a chief revenue officer, that revenue is important to the business. Internal. Yeah, Yeah. like that's that's it. but I wanted the customers to know, like, I was the person when you don't know where else to go to, like the buck stopped with me. My picture was on the website. My name was on the website. My phone number was on the website. My email address was on the website. People internally asked me like, Adam, you crazy? Like people are going to reach out to you. I said, exactly. yeah. So like, <laughs> like if they're, if they have to go out to our website and they need to reach out to me, then we're not doing something right. So I'd rather know, like, that's the avenue that they had to go. So I could figure out what wasn't working right so internally and under regular, under regular mode of operations. And so it was great. Like I, I traveled to our customer events. We, we did about, you know, seems like a lifetime ago already, right? but we would, we would do about um, 10 to 15 um, events around the country where we would have customers come into um, a, a different city. We'd usually have somewhere between 30 to 50 customers come in. So they're really great events. And I would basically MC a day for them and be accessible and available to them. And Everybody was shocked that an executive would spend their time to do that. But I always thought, why wouldn't an executive spend their time to do that? Like, you're our customers, and we genuinely want to know what you have to say. If things are great, I definitely want to hear that. If things are not great, I may not want to hear it, but I need to hear it so I can go do something about it. And um, they were really rewarding experiences. And uh, it also created a little bit of self-accountability, too. Because we typically go to the same cities year after year, go back and say, like, hey, we committed this thing. And then, like, go to the city the next year. If we didn't deliver on it, then I got i I've, yeah, I've got to an answer to them in person. So uh it really did help drive a great a great culture and allowed me to set an example for the business that I was really proud of. That's so awesome, man. One one of the CEOs that I worked for
1: um a few years back, when I when I showed up there, they he had already established this program called Listening Matters Tour. And every year he would send the entire executive team out and they would have to go, every single executive would have to go, and they take a CSM with them. And they'd have to go to a, a geographic location and meet with as many customers as they could. And ironically, it was a HR tech company as well. But we we had to meet with as many customers as we possibly could in that area. And it was like a at least a three day, if not a full week of, of travel. And everybody had to do it. And people came back with such good stories and reinvigorated and stuff that we had to go work on and fix and and unwind. I mean, it, was, it was just, it was a powerful concept. So like what you so when you, gave up cco title for the
0: CEO title did you get rid of facilities and all that other stuff so you could just so i never had that so that's or? where that's where my chief operating officer title was a bit of a misnomer um so i wasn't like overseeing entire operations for the business it was the customer operations and so as we began to put resources in place to focus on general operations that's when we brought in a more proper COO, a more traditional coo um, and i took on the title my responsibilities didn't change but i took on the title of cco but in reality um for for many of those that are out there it was it was the responsibilities of a cro um the the thing that i was most accountable to was making sure that our business achieved our net revenue retention excuse me net revenue growth uh and so that's how we were always benchmarked and targeted in terms of what our annual recurring revenue increases were from year to year and uh that was our mission and so a huge part of that was retention uh and then buoyed by what our customers were going to be buying for. And that's where I always thought that in a SaaS model, like if you get retention right, then you're going to earn opportunities to grow. Hopefully you have other things to sell, whether it's an upsell or a cross-sell type of service. And if you have those components right, you're going to have a healthy business. You should be growing at something like 110, 115% against your net revenue. And then in that perspective, like prospect sales becomes like gravy. It's like what you're just sort of piling on top, which is crazy to think about because I know Jeff and Jay, we were both like kind of involved in different conversations about a disproportionate focus that leaders have on prospect sales versus what they can get through better retention and through existing customer growth. Yeah, go go read Zendesk and PagerDuty and some of their,
1: their public filings before they went public. I mean, these companies are growing at 30, 40, 50% organically from their existing customers before they even added a new one to it.
0: Right. I mean, it's like so much easier. It, it makes it like so much easier. And again, being a leader that ultimately was accountable to the number, I wanted to make it as easy as possible to do that. And I didn't want to have to stress over, you know, you know, whether somebody got cold feet on the prospect sales side or, or you know, a new executive came in or an acquisition all suddenly happened and that big deal we were counting on all of a sudden falls through. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I did as much as I possibly can with the customers that I knew loved us and that we could do
2: more for Do you, um, so as you think about the idea of owning revenue underneath like kind of a chief, chief customer officer title and potentially having sales and, and marketing roll into that, um, do you think that that leader has to have experience in the sales and marketing? Like, do you think, I would almost consider you a unicorn a little bit, right? Because you had the experience in marketing and sales and customer you know operations and customer success, so you really had the the full package across your um, across your career. I think a lot of times now we see a lot of customer success leaders who basically are just going straight up through that organization, and so they haven't had the sales and marketing. So how do you think about you know as you're going into companies to advise, or as you're even just looking from the outside, like you know obviously I'm going to say it's situational, right? It doesn't it depends on the person, it depends on the situation, but generally, have you found that? you know, you could, this type of, uh, model where you have all the revenue rolling under a chief customer officer, like, have you seen that work again? And do you think it c- can work again outside of I-SIMS?
0: Um, well, I, I may be naive. I definitely think it could work again. I, I would hope that if, if I, if I took on a similar mandate in another company, I would hope that it would be successful. Um, um, but, but you're right. I, I, it is, it is a bit of a challenging, um, it is a bit of a challenging function, especially with, uh, the expectations and, and perceptions of, of a sales leader. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go as far to bucket marketing under the chief customer officer. Um, there's a lot that goes into the, the branding and the messaging and the nuances of marketing that I don't think you need to have that under, under a CCO. But once that person gets engaged, once that person is actively working with you, that's where you want to be able to have a lot more control over those experiences. I would... I would encourage any chief customer officer that's out there to tie themselves as closely as possible to a number that they can right now. And if that then develops into leading an entire sales organization because they have that experience, then great. I don't think that it has to be, so I would I would trust a chief customer officer that has owned the retention number or even um, even owned net revenue retention. Forget about grow- uh, Forget about overall growth for a second. I would trust that person that I would just blindly have a sales leader who was always good at hitting a prospect sales number, then lead the customer side of the equation. The reality is that most of those sales leaders don't care about what happens to the customer after after they sign. But I would be squeamish if I was going to be putting somebody that had never owned a number and showed that they could work under a number and showed that they wanted to work under a number in charge of that entire spectrum. Did you have a, at what point did you add a VP sales
1: or an SVP of sales to, to run that new prospect play?
0: Sure, so... Um, probably brought, so as chief customer officer, well, I guess I'm trying to think back, probably our first VP of sales that reported through to me was probably back in like 2010 or so. Um, and then we ended up reintroducing that in around 2013, 2014, something like that. Um, and both of those times, it was really a matter of scale. Uh, we wanted to try to scale out and do things differently as a business. Um, in one in one venue, it was to um, expand a little bit more internationally and begin to build that out with an eye towards what we we're doing there. Um, and the second kind of version of it, it was going much more towards an enterprise market, focusing um, on different sales cycles and being able to manage those um, a little bit uniquely than what we were kind of used to and maybe a, a faster, I don't want to call it transactional, but a faster selling cycle in an SMB market. Uh, but as as I felt that our business was changing, that's when I began to look at the team beneath me to see. What are the skill sets that I believe are missing to allow us to take that next level? Um, I, I always thought of myself as being adaptable and willing to learn, but if I didn't have to run into the brick wall, I, I would prefer to hire somebody that understood how to get us around it. And it seems
1: like you did that your whole career. I mean, running marketing when you were 23 or 24, running sales. Early a lot of brick walls. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. A lot of mistakes, but, but but this is again where it comes back to culture. And Jeff, like what you when you called out um, earlier on about profitability and, and, and whatnot, like the, the opportunities that were afforded to me, I mean, I got opportunities to do things I definitely should not have gotten opportunities to do, but circumstance and opportunity really, really um, came into play here. And I'm proud to say that I was able to succeed in many instances, but there are plenty of instances where it just didn't work out and it didn't pan out the way we wanted to. Um, and I'm sure that a lot more experienced leaders would have been able to do more with that opportunity than I was able to do at that particular time. And once you kind of run into a few of those experiences, then, you know, like this is the one where you want to bring in somebody to help guide this ship into, into the ship into the next journey. Uh, I think a great example for me was around the services side of things. Um, I had a lot of passion about making sure we were doing the right things uh, for our customers, but in terms of scaling out a, an experience that would work for both enterprise businesses as well as smaller businesses and be able to kind of create a professional services organization that would be able to do that and be able to manage the metrics that are important to that. You really want to get somebody with that defined skill set, as opposed to somebody that's really learning that on the job, um, and really proud of the the leader that we brought in there, who did a wonderful job at ISIMS for probably close to six or seven years, that allowed us to achieve this incredible run and the incredible outcome that we that we were able to um, end up uh, pulling together.
2: I like I like the point that you just made, Jay, about um, you know, and Adam, you made it yourself, but just about finding sometimes it's not about having the answer yourself or being able to do it yourself. It's just having the uh, self-awareness to understand that like, Hey, if I get the right person in that seat, then it's going to like make the problem go away for me. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look good in who I need to look good to and uh, they're going to succeed and and be a star as well. So I think that's something for for people to think about too is just making sure you've got the right butts in the right seats because that over time, if you have that self-awareness, just like you said, you were younger managing people that were probably older than you, but uh, if you can identify and make sure you've got the self-awareness to say, hey, I'm not gonna have all the answers I haven't had all the experiences you've had, but in the sales organization, I'm gonna help remove roadblocks. You know, In marketing, I'm gonna find the right leader. In customer success org, I'm gonna go meet with as many customers as possible and be the voice in the company, right? That's all self-awareness that you've had to go uh, basically bring, bring into the organization, which I think is huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, and one thing that's really, really relevant to that point, Jeff, that's very important for this time period that we're in right now is that, as I think back to a lot of those hires that I was just sort of referencing, we didn't actually have the positions open, but we thought that we were going to have that need, and so I just started talking to people. Um, there wasn't a job that was posted or anything like that. It was just beginning to network and be um, being available to people that were, you know, maybe maybe reaching out to our company because they knew that we were in Central New Jersey and they started to hear about us and they didn't want to commute to the city anymore or something like that. And instead of shutting out those conversations, I embraced those conversations and. Yep. If you meet the right person, you you make the role for them, and so there were times with down economy, or maybe we didn't think we needed it, or maybe we didn't want to spend as much as we would have needed to spend in order to bring in a certain role. We ended up making those cases because we believed that we were going to have the need, and the right person was now available for us. And there are so many times. I was just the other day. I was on a call with sales leaders, and and they were talking about they were talking about. um, a lot of the advantages that they saw in the past few months in terms of continuing to spend in marketing, they're like a lot of their competitors stopped spending. And so they continued to spend and they got all the quality leads. A lot of the noise from some of the weaker leads were, were um, kind of not there and they were getting a lot of quality leads in. But now more businesses are starting to invest. The same thing is with talent. You have to be speaking to talent right now because there are people that are going to be looking for positions that would never have looked at your business before. But if you don't have a job that's posted, even if it's a sourcing rec or something, or if you're not actively engaging on, on sources like LinkedIn or your own networks to kind of engage in those conversations, you're going to miss out on them. And you may miss out on them that, for a period that falls outside of your own investment window or whatever your business window looks like. It's a, it's a key attribute of a successful executive
1: in my mind is that you're always looking for talent. Because when you do have the opportunity, you've got to be able to move fast.
0: And you have to have somebody already ready to go. I, yeah, I, I feel and- like it's core. And even if it doesn't work in that moment, you keep that relationship going. You'd be like, I remember, like I like this woman that I spoke to. And you know what? Maybe three years later you go and you say, the the time, is the time right for you? The time right for me? Let's, let's. (laughs) It happens all the time. You know, you're able to fill these spots, but it's, it's hard to make it all work for the person and for you. It becomes a very limited population of population of people when you're only looking at that one precise time.
2: Yeah, that's such a good point. The, uh, so one, one, Thought that came to my mind that I thought uh, would be really good to post you on or question question you on is um, we had a we had a B two B sales leader uh, by the name of Jake Dunlap uh, come on the podcast. This is probably about a month or so ago. Um, you know, he's seasoned leader. He's he's been in B two B businesses before. He's got his consulting firm now. And one of the concepts we were talking about with him is um, from the customer success side of the organization. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of talk, at least in our community, with people that we meet all the time, right, about how we're not selling the right deals and that, just like you said, we might be discounting, we might be doing things that are really going to be detrimental to long-term retention. And one of his points was he thinks there's going to be a fundamental shift in how sales compensation um, is going to be structured moving forward And when you think about SaaS businesses as, you know, a little, yes, there's still going to be kind of the upfront booking and you're going to get, you know, a salesperson still going to get comped on that, but, there's going to be some that's tied to maybe uh first year second year renewal, or maybe you get some accelerators if the customer ends up staying for a longer period of time. But uh, I'm curious if you know, you're from your days, right. You actually had to own sales and customer success. If you see something along those lines, or if you had to do anything with the contracts uh, when you were there to try and help incentivize sales, you know, that we really want to sell the right deals. Like how did you really think about that um, from your, from your vantage point by owning both?
0: Yeah. So my, my, my thinking on comp plans, whether they're for sales or for, whether it's for more service-oriented roles and kind of wherever you want to put customer success along that spectrum, um, my, my philosophy is that you want to keep them as simple as you possibly can. And you want to make sure that the outcome you're trying to achieve is not mistaken by anybody. And there are definitely comp plans that I put into place and I felt like they were, they were great. They were going to speak to the exact need of what the company is trying to achieve, but the actual practice of them became a lot more convoluted and complicated and they would fall apart. Um, and it would create a lot of angst within the business because the thing that you don't want to mess with, you don't want to mess with people's money. Um, I'll speak a little bit to like employee experiences in a minute, but you want people to know what they're shooting for, know how they're rewarded and not, not question it. You don't want them to have to have crazy calculations in order to figure out what they have to have, and they you don't want to create uncertainty in terms of what that future is going to look like. You want to make it very, very simple and easy, so people could just go run and chase the number. With sellers, you want them to be able to run and chase the targets that they have. Um, so, I always try to make them as as simple as we can and and as straightforward. But inevitably, every comp plan is going to end up going astray for one reason or another because people are going to get comfortable with it. They're going to find loopholes in it. And then you're going to start trying to duct tape it together say, oh wait, I got to cover up that weird thing, cover up that weird thing. And the next thing you know, you have like a Frankenstein sort of plan. That's complicated and convoluted and you need to rethink it. So it's important to kind of keep those things in mind, but I've always been kind of partial to just trying to keep them as simple as possible and really driving to the primary goal. And that's where, um, I feel like retention is, is very, very, um, Important and underserved in terms of compensation within businesses. Um, a lot of CFOs will look at retention and just say that that's money that we're going to get. Of course, they're our customer, they're going to renew. We're, we know we're going to renew at 95%, 90, 90%, 85%. We know we're going to get that. But what you don't know is which companies are going to renew. And that's where the people that are engaged in those conversations every day and are working towards those outcomes deserve to have, um, in my opinion, deserve to have variable compensation based on that. And when they have skin in the game at that level, Uh, you do get wonderful results um, of course until they figure out ways to kind of game the system a little bit and you need to kind of corral that in but um, i think it's important that if you're going to have people that you're going to have on the hook for revenue coming from retention so you're keeping those customers i think it's important to give them uh, a material skin in the game that they can easily calculate and count on
1: the people who are directors of cs vps of cs maybe even sdp of cs people who might aspire to become a chief customer officer what's one thing that you, you would, one piece of advice you would give them today to sort of climb that ladder and go to the next step, um,
0: like, like what, what
1: would you recommend that they, what 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 action should they be doing right now?
0: So uh, the most important thing that I would say is that uh, somebody that's leading CS has to tie themselves to revenue. Uh, if they're not directly tied to revenue today, don't ask, tie themselves, just find a way to tie themselves, start Let's acting in that way. Yeah. Um, Maybe, they, maybe in their model, they're saying, you know, customer retention, we don't own the renewal process and maybe an account management team or the sales team gets compensated on renewals. Tie yourself to that. Be the voice of every reason why a customer may churn because that's when a CEO wants to talk to you. If you have that kind of insight and that kind of um, um, perspective on things, that's a C-level um, designation. If you're going to go to that and you're just going to speak to, this is our handle time. This is our time to implement. Uh, that's not that, Those are important metrics and important data points, but they're not the most relevant to the business growth and the business trajectory. Tie yourself to revenue and don't wait. Don't wait for somebody to put it on you. Take it on, ask for it. If not ask for it, take it and make yourself um, individually accountable to it. I, I love it. I, I've never seen anybody be punished for proactively tying themselves to revenue. No, it's scary. you're not gonna get in trouble (laughs) like well i'll tell you it's scary it puts you in the spotlight and and you're in you're in a lot of more difficult conversations but it's much better it's much better to be a part of that conversation than to not be a part of that conversation whether you're thinking about your um, individual career or even if you're thinking about the plans that you're trying to drive for a business and it's just especially in the climate like now it's really difficult for people to figure out well what's going to happen next with the virus and business climate and whatnot You want to be at that table. In order to be at that that table, you have to be able to speak in terms of revenue. Awesome. All right, man, we're going to wrap it up. Love it. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. This is great. I really appreciate it. it. I hope hope everybody uh, appreciates the time as well.
1: Hey guys, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Talk to you soon.